with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for addiction treatment behavioral health providers. Today, we are speaking with Zach Immel. He is one of the co-founders of Listen, which is an AI-based tool for evaluating efficacy within clinical settings. Before we get into the conversation there, let's hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So as many of you know, I'm obsessed with data, and that is as much on the marketing side of things as it is on business growth and fundamentals, KPIs, and clinical outcomes and patient outcomes. So I was super excited to find Zach because one of the gaps, if you're not in the clinical space, you might not be aware that we really don't know what works in terms of specific elements of treatment. We'll often hear that you know CBT or MI or DBT are evidence-based practices but if you break those down and you say, hey, what about CBT is evidence-based? What about it works? Is it the meditative practice that we teach? Is it the negative cognitive restructuring for negative thoughts? Is it the incremental goal setting, right? What are these things that are effective? And the reality is that we don't know. No one's actually ever done that research. So it's just starting to come out. And one of the things that Zach and his team has been looking at for the past couple of years is trying to figure that out. So they've created an AI-based platform that records conversations happening in real time within therapeutic environments, and they have millions of therapeutic interactions at this point. And then they map that to what they then see in the patient outcomes. So here's what happened within the therapeutic session. Here's the patient outcomes over time. Let's match the positive improvement with the patients with what we were seeing as commonalities within those clinical settings and starting to get an understanding of what is effective. And something I really value in this conversation is we do start to break that down. Something that is often, you know, Zach mentioned squishy is the therapeutic alliance. There's this idea that the therapeutic alliance is the primary variable within effective treatment, which has quite a bit of research support. There's different different research papers out there that go back and forth on it. But for the most part, we can say it definitely has a positive effect, but that also has concrete elements and can be broken down into discrete skills. Therapeutic alliance actually requires empathetic listening. It requires open-ended questions. It requires affirmative statements. It requires the patient talking more than the clinician most of the time. Um, So some of these specific elements are really, really important. And we get into a conversation on what we're actually seeing in terms of effective therapy, what the future holds, how you can implement this into a program. For me, it's really, really exciting research. And I think it's very necessary to our conversation in the field as we move forward with more measurement-based care, feedback-informed clinical loops, and everything that's important for improving patient outcomes. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Zach, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and listen? Well, Nick, I'm a, 
I'm a psychologist by training. I'm a licensed psychologist in the state of Utah. I've been a professor here in the counseling psychology program since 2011. Um, before that, I was a postdoc in the VA and have really been involved in doing research at the intersection of technology, psychotherapy process or conversations and treatment outcomes for about that same amount of time, about 10 years, and have always just been interested in what is it in the, the conversation between two people that leads them to you know, change their behaviors, feel less stressed, reduce suicidal ideation, like any of the outcomes we care about. And so I've been pretty obsessed with that type of research for a long time. Well, I was really excited to talk to you because of that research. And I was actually just running a, a training this weekend at Cumberland Heights that most people are familiar with in the field. And I always ask the question when we're doing clinical trainings, what are some evidence-based methodologies? And they list them, you know, CBT, MI, DBT, et cetera. And I say, well, what about those therapies is effective? Like what's actually working there? And there's always silence. And it's not uh -huh. the therapist's fault because the reality is that the research actually isn't out there that's identifying it. So you guys are actually working on that kind of research. And to me, that is fascinating. It's insanely valuable. So what sparked your interest in identifying you know, the efficacy of specific elements within interventions? Gosh, I mean, going back that far, you know, I was a I was a religion major in school, um, in college. I mean, I was I was a psychology major as well. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to go that direction, I guess. But, and what I was interested in, in in religious studies and in theology was the conversations between different religions about why, you know, their understanding of the you know the universe and the the human dilemma at some level. And those were really interesting and engaging and often pretty dense. And what I started to find compelling when I got into psychology and took my you know, first classes in a master's program in counseling was the conversations between therapy approaches weren't all that different than the conversations I felt like I was hearing between religious groups. And sometimes, honestly, the, the religious conversations were more moderated and respectful than the one <laughs> between uh, therapy approaches, which I found surprising because they're, you know, broadly were, hey, aren't we scientists here? And so I got really interested in that, that dilemma of like, gosh, how do we, how do we use science to understand why people think and feel the way they do? And how do we change it? And so right at the time I was coming out of graduate school, he, he wasn't my advisor at the time, but I read a book by this psychologist who you should you should talk to at some point uh bruce wampold at university of wisconsin who's now retired but still still doing research um, and he had written a book called the great psychotherapy debate and it was about really how, how do we take the best empirical data and evidence we have and use it to answer the age-old questions about which treatment works for whom and how and he had put that together in a way that I found really compelling and novel. And, and really the, the interesting answer that came out of that research, which was, wasn't entirely new, but he had proved it in a different way was we've got lots of evidence for all sorts of different interventions. We can't find really any evidence that one works better than any other. And the things that we can find evidence for that matter in those interventions are usually the things that are common about them, not unique. 
right? And so it would be things like the quality of the therapeutic relationship, empathy, supportive affirmations, instilling hope and positive expectancy, um, having a goal and setting and doing some work to sort of move towards it. And it clearly mattered that you were doing some sort of structured intervention of some type that had an evidence base to it, but which type you used wasn't clear. And that it was really, really hard to find good evidence for, you know, if therapist does this specific thing, A, B, or C, it's better than them doing X, Y, or Z. And if you think about like why that is, I mean, think about how hard that research idea program is, right? A psychotherapy conversation, one hour, might be a thousand talk turns and there's tens of thousands of words and we're trying to say in that big mess of conversation when the the therapist did this specific verbal intervention that made a difference versus this other verbal intervention and the the type of data that we needed to answer that question in a compelling way just didn't exist and still really to we're starting to, I think, create it, but still really doesn't, right? The We can do things with patient self-report and therapeutic relationship stuff, but the, it's really hard to get large amounts of data about what happens during psychotherapy conversations. And so um, I was fascinated by that problem because it seemed like one we had really not really figured out just yet. And I was interested in trying to push it forward. Really interesting to explain this a little bit and we're kind of opening up a little bit of a, a can of worms here. Um, you wouldn't think so, but we are. And it's actually ironic. I was just uh, part of a evidence-based therapy chat this morning with a group. And that same exact comment was made where the researcher was saying, he's like, man, I was involved on this call. And I felt like I was listening to a debate among uh, separate religions because <laughs> people were so vociferous about defending a particular technique, but without concrete scientific based evidence, we could say maybe. It tends to be very values driven. It tends to be very opinionated, but we are lacking this empirical foundation. And so there's this whole opportunity within the space, but we get a lot of pushback. And so maybe we can talk about that and, and start the conversation there is some therapists will push back pretty strongly and say, this is an art. It's not a science. This is human. It's relationships between people. We can't quantify that. And moreover, what they're kind of not saying is by quantifying it, we're, we're somehow making the process not as valuable or taking something away, something's being lost. So how would you respond to the need for data and an empirical understanding built into this feedback loop in terms of clinical processes? Yeah, yeah, great, great question and kind of an age old, you know, those, those sorts of arguments were leveled at Carl Rogers in the 50s when he started using early recording technology to get inside of what was actually happening in counseling. But what, you know, what I would also, what I would do is just to frame the debate. And I think this is implied by what you were saying. There are folks on the other side of that argument who say, if you don't measure what you do, and if you don't use these very specific evidence-based practices that have been defined in treatment manuals and measure all of these things, then you're not doing psychotherapy. You're just chatting. And in fact, you're harming, potentially harming your patients. You're certainly not helping them. And that you're kind of stopping the field from progressing, right? And so that's why it gets so heated, right? You've got one side saying that and the other side saying the other, and they both want to help people. 
right? And so to steal from my friends in dialectical behavior therapy, I really think the truth is in the middle of those two perspectives where, yes, when you sit down with another human being and have an hour-long conversation with them, it is awfully difficult to script that. And maybe the extent to which you script it might ruin it because it's you're not responding in a real way to the person in front of you. And to say that we're not going to try and measure the key elements of that and that we're not going to try and measure whether or not that conversation was helpful and do it at scale so we can have some attempt to improve and understand the quality of services we're billing for and providing and that we have a responsibility to the patients who are coming to us in need of help who are in high high amounts of distress and shouldn't be expected to evaluate whether or not the conversation is going well themselves, we should be doing that. I, I think it's incumbent upon us to do both, right? To respect the difficulty, nuance, and art of psychotherapy, but also understand that it is a science that pieces of that can be broken down and, and studied in a way that is respectful to the difficulty and relational part of it. And so I think, I, and I, I guess I should also declare my my bias is that we just aren't going to move things forward unless we measure them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just not, it's not a sustainable long-term plan to say that the way we grow the mental health system and improve the quality of it is to just sort of say, you know, you've got a license. That's great. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's also not true to say that we can't give, we, we have to give therapists autonomy to do and respond to the person in the room and respect that tension. And so I, I do think that people are responding to a real dilemma. And the question is, how do we artfully navigate that tension? You're, you're absolutely right. This is, as you said, it's an age old question and it's a, it's a dialectic, it's a tension that always exists when you're talking about best practices and, and being prescriptive versus allowing for experience and expertise to adapt at a certain level. You know, as I always say, we can't hire a high school kid and go and have them run a therapy session or go and have them teach a class or go and have them do anything without a lot of training and a lot of experience. And so you can create the best curriculum or the best clinical matrix in the world, but not anyone can just walk in and follow that and get results. There's always this human element that's really important on the other side, we know for a fact that therapists can absolutely harm their patients and make recovery a more difficult process. And I mean, we've seen that with, you know, William Miller is one that most people I hope listening are familiar with, but he found very clearly that when therapists were empathetic and encouraged change talk and positive change talk, they got very positive recovery results. Whereas if they were directive, they got more resistant behavior and people were less likely to achieve recovery results. So it's very important for us to measure, as you said, because we have to understand where we're starting from. We have to understand what's having a positive impact and what's having a negative impact. Because the last thing what we want to do is have a negative impact on our patients. And that is, it's a very real concern that happens if we're not doing measurement. Totally. And, and, and the thing that's difficult to acknowledge too, is that we can do the best evidence-based care we think we're able to provide and people get worse and how do we know unless we measure it right and this is right you know 
the therapist might say, well, I know I can tell. And, and the, the data on that's not that great, right? We're actually not able to tell sometimes. Yeah. And so my, my bias is always towards, you know, the more information, the better. And if we can have other sorts of information that augment my judgment in the room and my sense of how things are going, I think really maybe what we need to do is think about what the, you know, what the definition of expert is. And of course it is, it is somebody who has been doing something for a while, but I also think it's someone often expertise is more about getting feedback and practice and skills over time and being aware of the tools and resources that are necessary to do my job at the highest level. And so it may be that 50 years ago, we didn't have any sorts of tools that could help you monitor in an ongoing way how your patients were doing or get feedback on your empathy or use of different types of key evidence-based skills. But now we do, right? And so what does that mean? Because we don't train tennis players the way we trained tennis players 50 years ago. We don't train basketball players the way we did 50 years ago. We, we've evolved and arguably people have gotten better. And so I, I like to think we could do the same thing in behavioral healthcare because I think the, the evidence, I don't know if you've seen, there's some papers from Simon Goldberg and other people where they've looked at the outcomes of therapists over time. And I think the most charitable interpretation is that over time therapists don't get better. The, the probably the better interpretation is that they get slightly worse in terms of their outcomes. And so there's, there's something about, and it, and it makes sense given what we know about expertise and the work of like Daniel Kahneman and other people in the field who study that is if you go into a place where you're not getting consistent feedback on what you're doing, it's really hard to keep getting better at it. Um, and that people who get better at, at certain skills never stop getting feedback. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that can be a tough pill to swallow because often in, in my conversations with clinicians, you know, they they fall back on, hey, I've got X amount of degrees, I've been in this space X amount of years. And so the assumption is by default, I'm better than someone that doesn't have that certification or that doesn't have that amount of experience. But the reality is, and this is true for any space, whether it's therapy or something else, that you're right, if you're not getting feedback, and that can be patient-based feedback. Uh, from my perspective, I think having an expert clinician also supporting your feedback is incredibly valuable, but just getting patient feedback is, is very valuable. And we've seen the research on that, and there is data that shows that clinicians can improve with um, patient feedback for the most part. You know, there, there's some cautions out there depending on how confident the therapist is and that has an impact on how they receive feedback and react to it. Um, but at the same time, there, there's always a best practice, right? There's never one right way, but we would never tell someone building our house that there aren't specific ways that that house should be built. <laughs> you know, when they're working on a car. And so I think sometimes we want to say that the human experience can't be reduced to um, an analogy around building a house or a car, but there's absolutely some things that work and some things that don't or are more likely to work and less likely to work. And we have to be aware of those as a field if we want to be effective in what we're trying to do. And it's a little bit harder because we haven't had that data. But why don't you talk a little bit about that? So we're starting to get some of this data and you guys are building some of it at Listen. What is the data that you're looking for? And then following up from that, what have you seen so far to be really relevant when helping therapists identify and improve their practice? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, at, at Listen, I think the the core of our 
you know, our origin story, I guess, if you will, was wanting as scientists and people who had been studying psychotherapy for a long time and wanted to see it improve was how do we create the tools and the data necessary to really start to understand what are the things that matter during those conversations we're having across a variety of different behavioral health kind of scenarios, whether it's like the traditional kind of brief interventions or if it's a, you know, a crisis call or a caseworker or a coach or like whatever you want to say, there's, what are those ingredients? And really the, the data that we had was in small efficacy trials where people had been trained to perform a very specific intervention and they were encouraged to be very consistent in how they provided it. And we know that 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 is not a great medium for understanding how variability in therapist behavior correlates with things like whether or not someone gets better, whether their PHK-9 scores go down, whether they stay in treatment, whether they're satisfied. And so we were interested in creating a database that we could work with that was naturalistic in the sense of it really captured the true breadth of the types of things that therapists were doing both within session and between sessions and across clients of all kinds. And so what we've really worked with our customers and the people and the research partners we have is to collect really just millions of psychotherapy conversations at this point. And then we've invested heavily in our own team and labeling them um, with humans first for, um, and not all millions, we're not, we're not superheroes, just a subset of them. And for things like key evidence-based practices like empathy, collaboration, warmth, active listening, open questions, doing complex or simple reflections, giving advice, giving information, confrontations, um, all of these sorts of very basic therapist behaviors, but then also looking at things like cognitive behavioral therapy, other sorts of topics of conversations. I think that's one thing. Psychotherapies, researchers forget that because we really get into our theories, but uh, clients come to therapy for help with problems, right? It's like, I've got a problem in my relationship. I've got a problem with drinking. I've got a problem. That, and that's what they want to talk about. They don't really, some level, care what the theory is that's in your head, even though you really need to have one. And so we've been collecting that data and we've been used it to train machine learning models that can evaluate those things at scale and, and where it becomes trivial to run those algorithms on all of the conversations that we might have for a given uh, customer or service. And so we are starting to see some patterns there. And some of, some of this will be, we'll be submitting for peer reviewed publication very soon. And, and it's really, on, honestly though, it's at a scale and a level we've never seen before, but it's pretty consistent. Like if you read um, Terry Moyer's and Bill Miller's book on like clinical skills and effective therapists, and they have chapters associated with each of these skills that there is good evidence base for, we're really finding similar things, right? And so if the percent, just as one concrete example, right, if the percentage of the therapist interventions that are what we call complex reflections increases, and so complex reflections in motivational interviewing, but just broadly across psychotherapy are, are when the therapist makes an attempt to express their understanding of a client, but it's not just a simple parroting there's an attempt to either add meeting or amplify or summarize. It's like going a little bit beyond just doing a simple um, listening statement where it's, it sounds like you're feeling sad. The 
increase in percentage of those is associated with reductions in PHQ-9 scores, increases in retention, and increases in satisfaction. Same with things like empathy, same things like affirmations, making supportive statements. And so this isn't rocket science, even though the algorithms that, that we use to help generate that feedback are, are close to rocket science. But the a key job of the therapist is to develop a supportive, trusting, empathic relationship with their client. And the evidence base for that, I don't think that's a particularly novel statement, but it's one of the most clearly empirically derived statements you can make about the psychotherapy literature. Recapping just a little bit for the audience. So you've got an AI backend where you originally had all these conversations and then you had humans manually label what the piece of the conversation represented so that you have a, a baseline and some kind of similarity across conversations that the AI can recognize. And then you're mapping that to long-term outcomes. So you're tracking PHQ-9, GAD7, BAM scores, et cetera. And then the AI should be able to match up what happened in these 100 conversations here, did that correlate to outcomes, and then somehow find matches. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it, and, I, and what I would say is not 100 conversations, but, you know, right. 100,000 conversations. And yeah, because the patterns can be subtle, right? It's, it's, it's surprising to me at some level at all that just simply increasing the rate of those behaviors correlates with things because it's not so simple, right? You, you're responding dynamically to clients over time and just doing more of one thing isn't always just going to be better. But yeah, that's what we've done. And that's what we're doing with a variety of different customers. We've got studies on that that I, I don't want to go into too much detail beyond because they'll be coming out soon, hope. But then we also have uh, just one study to mention that's more focused on cognitive behavioral therapy. We are currently getting off the ground what I think, I don't even think it, will be the largest evaluation of cognitive behavioral therapy um, skills ever done by an order of magnitude. And so we're working with researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and then the Department of Behavioral Health in Philadelphia to roll out a tool where we're trying we're taking folks who are getting trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. We're working with folks in public mental health. And then we can see after they've been trained, are they using those skills over time? And then how are those skills associated with how people are doing in treatment? And not with just like 100 people. We're talking about doing it in like 20,000 sessions. And so we're going to start to be able to really examine a level of detail that's not possible with true variability where people are all over the map in terms of their CBT fidelity or their ability to use the intervention. And are specific types of um, CBT skills related to treatment outcomes? Because that, that has been a struggle in the literature where on the one hand, we have really great evidence that using interventions like CBT for depression or behavioral activation or CPT or whatever are associated with people getting better. But if you dial, dig into those specifics of those interventions, it's really been hard to associate specific components of them with treatment outcomes. Yeah. And yeah, I actually want to explore that a little bit, you know, going back to a conversation we had earlier, that's what we're really trying to look at, right? So if we take CBT skills, you've got your meditation, you've got your incremental goal setting, you've got your restructuring negative thoughts. So the question is CBTs and evidence-based treatment seems to work better than some other options, but what about it? If we took the meditation piece out, would it be as effective? Yes or no. 
Now, you encountered a, a challenge that I see pretty consistently in providers where you talk to a therapist and they tell you that they're using CBT as an example within their therapeutic setting. And then you go into their actual therapy sessions and you record those and you find a gap that there's not exactly fidelity <laughs> between what they say they're doing and, and what's actually being implemented. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And here's where I would, I would push you towards some work done by some of my good colleagues at Penn, actually. So uh, Dr. Tori Creed in the Department of Psychiatry, uh, she has done some really great large-scale work evaluating what is the experience of patients who are trying to get access to cognitive behavioral therapy in the real world, right, in public mental health care. And so she's done these large-scale um, evaluations looking at just getting provider reports of their use of CBT skills and like their orientation of towards CBT. Are they, do they say they do their CBT therapist and then getting recordings of them doing treatment. And this is at the level of thousands of recordings. So the amount of work that she and her team have done is just kind of awe-inspiring. It's a, a tremendous um, amount of, of labor goes into doing these types of studies. And they've found functionally no relationship between the endorsement of CBT orientation and use of CBT skills. And so saying you're yeah. a CBT therapist doesn't have much to do with whether or not you're doing CBT. You might be. Um, there are plenty of people who say they're CBT therapists who are doing plenty of it. And then there just also happen to be a lot of people who aren't. And so we've, we've got to have, we've got to have a better solution than that. 100% agreed. Maybe two two examples I had fairly recently. I was talking to a therapist, and they both said that they were CBT therapists. The lesser the lesson, sorry, the session I observed, one talked about the last football game that they watched, and there was a whole conversation on it. And then the other one played, uh, "What are you bringing to the beach?" And it was literally 45 minutes of going around in a circle, where one patient at a time said, "Well, I'm bringing sunscreen, an umbrella, and a dog bone." And they went to the next person for 45 minutes. You know, and so not quite sure what those have to do with CBT, uh, but you know, apparently the therapist thought that what, that's what they were doing. So there is a pretty serious gap sometimes. I think it's important that you mentioned that some people do do it with fidelity and implement it well, but I have definitely consistently seen the extreme other way where I'm not quite sure what you would classify, you know, what's being done in the therapy session as. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, that holds not just for things like CBT. It holds for using empathic listening and, and being being sort of empathic generally with your clients. And so, and I think some of this, like, I, I think it's tempting to want to say, well, like kind of blame the therapist for not doing what they say they're doing. But I, I do think there is just a gap in this, in the context that we're providing for therapists to practice in particular types of ways. And so, if, if we set up a system where after you finish your training, no one, and this is not true for everyone, but it's kind of certainly the broad story, nobody with a license or any expertise really ever sees you do your clinical work ever again. That, that's just not a good recipe for maintaining quality over time um, because things that are not observed generally are not um, improving in their quality because you just don't have the ability to be critical about the process and reflect upon it. And it's really hard to imagine how you could, you could do that over time, over a career without, with, without a lot of help, because I don't think anybody could, 
I, I certainly don't think I could. And the type of feedback you get is a, you know, a, for example, a PhD student in our program right now where, you know, literally every session you do is recorded. And, you know, our program is using Listen, and so they're getting analytics on every session they do. And then their supervisor can look at those analytics, look across them, pick sessions where they may be high or low, and then dial in and still then use their human expertise to give them feedback, right? And so it's not like we're farming out supervision to an AI. We're using AI to support the quality of supervision and training, right? And so we can do the same things with our AI to support training, too. And so instead of if you do an online training for CBT, you know, you might watch some, look at some slides, watch some videos, maybe there's some pre-canned practice experiences or you can respond, but there's no feedback. Whereas we can now give you prompts and responds to vignettes and you can get direct feedback immediately on whether or not you're using these types of skills. And so you can start to slowly improve your skills over time and sometimes quite quickly. And so I, I just, I think, we have set up a system where it's really hard to inject the type of feedback and transparency we need to. And shifting that's going to be really challenging because it, it's not something we've done traditionally. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that point on why that gap exists, because I think there's three pieces. One, within graduate programs and doctoral programs, it's just book work. Or it's just theoretical foundation. And as we all know, there's a massive difference between knowledge and skill and knowing something and being able to do it effectively. I can read all I want about climbing mountains, but until I start climbing mountains, I'm not going to actually get good at it. So we have that gap there in, in the way that we educate therapists. And then there's a gap in the research. So we can't even tell them what is effective. We tell them to go do CBT, but what about CBT is effective? Nobody knows yet. And so they don't know what elements to incorporate. And then finally, there's no consistent feedback, like you said. And when they're getting supervision early on in their careers, that person went through the same process. They've never had feedback. They don't really know what is evidence-based or what's effective in the modalities that they're delivering. So it ends up devolving into something that resembles chat. And there's just not a concrete conversation. I mean, we, we were in a provider a couple of weeks ago and I'm talking to their clinical supervisor and they were doing the audits and the session reviews. And I said, well, what's your rubric? What are you using? They said, oh, well, we don't have one, right? Well, there's no structure. I said, so I'm like, well, how do you identify what's working and what's not working? It's like, oh, well, I just give organic feedback and, and that therein lies the problem. So lots of opportunity to improve the space. So on that note, you know, as you start looking at things programmatically, you start to identify some things that work within a program. But I think one of the challenges with some providers is that they're they're kind of short term. We have this acute treatment model that's 15 to 45 days a lot of the time. What recommendations or suggestions do you have for programs in terms of implementing um, effective evidence-based treatment in shorter timeframes? Yeah. The, I mean, I think the funny thing is here, I, I, I would assume you might you might know some of this data, is that the reality is almost all mental health treatment is short-term treatment. <laughs> right, where you know the modal number of sessions in outpatient behavioral health care is one. <laughs> That's right. 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 Yeah. The the mean is something you know. I think it moves around depending on context. Is more like three, you know. And if you go into certain places, you get something more like eight. But that's like eight sessions in a specified time period contiguously is a lot of treatment um, in standard behavioral health care. And then the the other interesting thing is is that when you one way to look at the one session 
the most common is being one session is kind of, gosh, there's just severe amount of under treatment that's happening here. And that's absolutely true. There is also evidence that a bunch of people who get one session feel a lot better. Yeah, it's true. And they feel like they got something helpful out of that interaction and that um, some of them don't feel like they need to come back. You know, that's not entirely clear if that's accurate, but they certainly feel that way. And so what is it that's happening in these brief interactions that is leading people to feel like I was so upset and in distress that I feel like I needed to come talk to a mental health practitioner. I did at one time and I felt better. And I think that's a useful model for thinking about the types of things for brief treatment models, because the answer to that, honestly, is we don't know. We don't know what's happening in those brief interactions because we really never studied it at a level which would help us answer that question. But what we do know is that the things that are most associated with outcome consistently in meta-analyses are things you can provide in one session or a few. So really working to express your understanding, be empathic, be non-judgmental, be warm, offer supportive statements. This, I think it's seen as kind of milk toasty or like, oh, you know, that's not that fancy or technical, but it's some of the most powerful stuff we have in our, you know, our arsenal as therapists, right? It's, and, and it's the stuff that has the most evidence. And so if I was to say, like the most important thing you could do in brief treatment models based on the, the current literature is to make sure that you're training folks to some level of ability and in some pretty simple evidence-based practices like motivational interviewing. And it's hard to do motivational interviewing, but the, but the, the basic ingredients are, are really simple, the core ingredients of good counseling. And if you did that and, and were able to increase the broad kind of level of empathy expressed and the level of active listening, open questions, reducing the number of confrontations and judgmental statements, things like saying, you know, if you don't change your behavior, you're going to die or you're going to lose your kids early on in treatment, you're going to have um, more satisfied clients, people who stay in care longer and people who get better. Um, and we you don't need our data to show you that. You can look at meta-analyses, you know, John Norcross's book, Psychotherapy Relationships That Work, Terry Moirier and Bill Miller's work. There's a meta-analysis from Molly McGill, who I think is at Brown still, on the correlations across lots and lots of studies of motivational interviewing and adherence and change talk and things like that. So that's, I think that's pretty well established. I think beyond that, it starts to get a little tricky. There's lots of things you can do, but saying, oh, this particular thing is going to work better than this other thing is harder to do. I think something really important to point out in what you're saying there is that the therapeutic alliance can be broken down into somewhat quantifiable actions. And some feedback or pushback that I'll often hear from therapists is, well, we see in the research that the therapeutic alliance seems to be the primary differentiator in terms of positive variance. And so all we're worried about is building the relationship. We don't worry about anything else because nothing else seems to matter in the research. And, and they have a valid statement there, but then they use that to say it's, it's all organic and it's subjective and it's an art where what you're saying, and I 100% agree with that, is that the therapeutic alliance is built through concrete actions. It's warm statements, it's open-ended questions, it's non-judgmental behavior, it's empathy and active listening versus directives. And so you can learn to build a therapeutic alliance better by focusing on concrete skills. Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely, that's, that's how I would 
I would say one issue I think with the way it's, I don't think it's actually the way it's defined, but the way it's discussed is that the therapeutic alliance feels like this kind of squishy, you know, just go build a relationship. Well, like, how do you do that exactly? And then what is the relationship? And so if you actually look at the measure, you know, we are asking clients to say, did, do I agree with my therapist on the tasks and goals of treatment? And do I feel bonded and connected to them? That's the measure. And so, well, how do you agree on the tasks and goals of treatment if you don't have tasks and goals? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And so some of it literally like the way you would go about implementing a quality therapeutic alliance would be about being clear about like what we're doing here. And like, here's where we want to go and here's what we're working on and getting and making sure that process is collaborative in a way that the client is bought in yep. and really agrees with what we're doing. And how do you do that? Right. I mean, like you, you do it by asking open-ended questions about what matters to them and making reflective statements about what they say and being understanding and supportive and like all, all those things. And so that is, that is how you go about creating a therapeutic alliance. And you can do that in the context of cognitive behavioral therapy or prolonged exposure or relapse prevention training. I mean, all of those things, I, the best CBT therapists I see use a lot of those types of skills in the context of performing those treatments. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, obviously it's hypothetical, but the reality is that when you look at neuroplasticity in the brain, we develop and evolve based on our environments and we adapt to it. And that's that becomes subjective in certain senses, but it's very real to us or to the individual. So when you're trying to build a therapeutic alliance and when you're trying to get buy-in and you want them to have hope in the process, then you have to understand where they're coming from, not where you're coming from. And I think that is often the, the underlying principle that we don't think about, but it's probably what's working. I mean, if I'm working in sub-Saharan Africa and I've got an individual that's absolutely convinced they need to see a witch doctor before they get their car fixed or before they go to therapy, someone outside of that culture is gonna laugh at that. But if you laugh at that, you're not going to work with that the way that that individual's mental frameworks and structures have been built throughout their entire life. And so that there's no way that they're going to buy into a process of change. And so regardless of what your worldview is, you have to align with their worldview because that's how their neurobiology and their frameworks were built. And that unique process is what allows people to achieve recovery in my perspective. Yep. So I think it's just very important to be thinking subjectively that doesn't mean that there is no best practice, right? There's a system and a process behind all of this and it can be quantifiable. It can have concrete skills. It's not some amorphous ephemeral voodoo, but we just have to be thinking about it in the right way. Yep. And I mean, the, the, the other thing I would say, I haven't talked about it explicitly, but it's related to this is some of the best meta-analytic evidence we have is for cultural adaptation and cultural sensitivity in psychotherapy. And so there, there are multiple studies that have been done now looking at adaptations of treatment rationale, measures of cultural sensitivity in care, the client's experience of how responsive the therapist was to their cultural kind of group membership, however they define that. And that is consistently associated with treatment outcomes as well. And so, and I, and I think it's sort of related to some of the relational empath, empathy pieces we were talking about, where if, if your client doesn't feel understood by you and that you care about them and that you're working to understand them, it's really going to be hard to do the work that we're trying to do in psychotherapy. And this, you know, goes all the way back to classic book that 
I don't know if folks have, have looked at, but is still worth a look every now and then is by Jerome Frank um, called Persuasion and Healing. And it's a comparative study of psychotherapy and kind of looks at it almost more like an anthropological um, perspective and really gets into its roots. Where did, where did psychotherapy emerge as a, a healing practice in Western medicine? Where did it come from? What are its corollaries and other, other groups? Because people have been having conversations to feel better and reduce distress and change behavior for a long, long, long time. Um, this is not new technology that we're basing our field on. We're just trying to study it. Yeah, I, I'll have to check that one out. And I'll also put that one in the show notes. I'll probably email you after so I can get that title and we'll put in the show notes for listeners to check out. So we've touched on it a little bit and we've covered a decent number of things that we see working. A lot of it is around therapeutic alliance and empathy building. Is there anything that you've seen so far that therapists should be avoiding that you've seen have negative correlates in the data? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing we're starting to see, and there's some tension here, and so I want to be careful because some of this stuff you is, you know, stuff you have to do and some amount of it is fine to do and, and limited balance. But at least in some of the data we're seeing is that the more... It, talking about percentages again, like uh, percentages of all of the talk turns that therapists take, the relative increases in things like assessment, advice giving, giving information tends to decrease symptom change and and uh, engagement and retention over time. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing any of those things. But what it does mean, I think, is that higher levels of those things can often mean that the client maybe feels like, you know, someone's kind of just talking at them, right? And that if you're just doing a bunch of like stacked questions over and over in sessions, that it can be, it can feel a little alienating to clients, right? More like kind of like nurse ratchet, right? Where you're just like, how are you, how are you, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we've worked with some customers where, they've found that, you know, they're trying to do really good assessments at the beginning of their care process and they should, right? Of course, you need to know what's going on with people, but they were doing so much assessment early on that it ended up resulting in people not even starting care because they just felt like, oh my gosh, like I'm just the more like, and so what they've started to try and do is just work in more active listening into the beginning part of the assessment. And still getting the same information, still making sure you're doing the assessment, but also doing some active listening in there. We've also been working with some researchers at Johns Hopkins on looking at these sorts of behaviors in primary care visits and related to medication adherence, treatment recommendations, things like that. And this is a very different context, right, where it's the job of the doctor at some level to like tell you what to do, right, and to do a good assessment of the symptoms you're experiencing and to make sure you're you're aware of all your treatment options. So there's the relative balance of giving information, advice giving, assessment versus just listening is very different than you might be might be in behavioral health care uh, traditionally, like with, with a therapist. But even there, we're finding that if you just increase the number of reflections the medical doctor does by a few percentage points or just a few number over the 10-minute session, People stay in care longer. They're more um, adherent to their medications and they're more satisfied. And so it may not be that the dose of this has to be all that high, right? It's not like we need to shift every provider 
into, you know, a walking Carl Rogers reflection machine <laughs> where all they're doing is just reflecting, 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 reflecting all the time. Now there may be some contexts where that's useful, but just increasing the relative amount of that could be helpful. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, going back to my teaching background in the neurobiology of learning, something that's really important to adult learners in particular, but I think for all learners is autonomy and self-direction. You know, I always ask in our trainings, how many of you like to be told what to do? Nobody ever raises <laughs> their hand. Uh, so that's really important. But then you think again around the subjectivity of how we learn things and how our, our neural pathways are built. And so if I've got, if I'm talking to someone and I say, look, addiction is a disease. I understand how diseases work. That makes sense to me. And say, so, okay, because I have this disease, there's certain things that I can't do, or you know, I have certain reactions to things. That makes sense to me. But if I go into a different culture where that's not the mindset, or where they see disease and issues within the physical body coming from, going back to our African example, you know, starting with magic and witch doctors, then that has no no meaning for me and I can't build new information on top of it, right? I have to connect new information to old information. Same thing with like with a 12 step program. If I come from a faith-based background and I talk to you about the 12 steps, it's very relevant to me. I can build knowledge on top of that entire mental framework. But if I come from a non-religious home, that doesn't make sense to me. And so I, I can't learn in that environment. And so the value of doing a lot of reflective questioning and having an MI-based approach is the individual is able to build new knowledge networks that are scaffolded on top of their existing information versus if you try to tell it to them, then it's coming from your own process of learning and you may not have the same connections. It may not make sense to them. So when they come at it from their own side and from their own understanding, it, it builds on top of what's there. It locks in. It becomes part of the network. And I think that's very important for a therapist to understand. Let's kind of wrap things up with the training component. So obviously a big part of this is training and we can go in and we can provide this feedback, which is helpful. Do you have particular suggestions based on the work that you've done so far that you think programs should be looking at as they try to implement more evidence-based methods or tools like you guys are using at Listen? You know, and, and some of this of course is derived by the the type of work we're trying to do and what I think matters here. But just to say, like, if you're going to be investing in training for your staff, is the training going to provide lots of opportunities for practice and feedback for my staff? And if it doesn't, it's unlikely that it's going to change any of the things my staff does with our clients, if it doesn't. It may provide other things that you need, right? There, there are certainly trainings where people, we just need to make sure people are aware of these sorts of backgrounds or this knowledge base or, or whatever. And that's, that's important too. But a lot of the training we end up doing in mental health care and behavioral health broadly is trying to influence the things that our, our providers do with their patients. And the best way, and maybe the only way to do that is to give people experience trying those behaviors, getting feedback that's reliable and then practicing them again. That's how we learn almost anything. And so we, we have been trying to build tools that do that without having to rely on having an expert around the whole time or having to find standardized patients that you recruit to, to come in. And so how do we take the scalability of online trainings that people like, but bring with it some of the feedback and practice experiences 
that we would typically get from pretty expensive um, in-person training that maybe you can only afford to do once every couple of years. And then you've lost 20% of your staff and you got to wait to train them again. Whereas if you had software, you could just have it a part of people's immediate onboarding is like, okay, you're just going to go through these trainings, practice these sorts of skills, and you'll know at the end whether or not people can actually do them or not. And so I think that's where there's a lot of people who are talking about this stuff sort of um, uh, involving practice in psychotherapy, either training or in ongoing supervision. And so I, I think there's a real strong potential here for technology specifically modern machine learning tools to augment trainings in a way that really wasn't possible until we started building some of these tools. And so we have a couple of existing tools for training and motivational interviewing, one for CBT, and we're looking to start to build those out with partners where we can train you in kind of the suite of interventions that, you know, that CCBHCs need to demonstrate that they're doing training in and that they need. So that's what I'm pretty excited about here in the, the coming months and year or two. And well, we're engaged in a couple of different research projects to not just validate the accuracy of the machine learning we're using to give people feedback for. We've, we've sort of already done that. It's making sure that these trainings are really improving people's skills and related to whether or not clients are getting better and feel feeling more connected to their care. And with data and outcomes, we can validate that that's actually happening. <laughs> That's, that's the hope. Great. Right. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm super excited for what you guys are doing. I, I just love it. I think it's going to be incredibly valuable to the field, and I'm glad that we have the technology to assist in that. So if someone wants to connect with you or learn more about Listen, uh, what would be the best way to get in touch? Yeah, appreciate that. that I, you know, I think the most reliable way to get in touch with us is just to go to our website. And there's a couple of different ways to get in touch with us, either through just a contact us form or things like that. I'm, I'm certainly on social media and things like that if you want to hit me up there but probably the best way to make sure it gets through the filter is just um, looking us up there and we'll we'll get back to you and i would recommend following you on linkedin because you've got great posts and they're super valuable for all the listeners out there this is a recovery executive podcast i'm your host nick jaworski and we'll see you next time